Okay, don't be afraid. The book of Revelation is not designed to scare you. It's designed to give you hope. It's all about hope. It's all about discipleship. But most importantly, it is all about Jesus Christ. So we are so excited to offer these sermons on the book of Revelation. We hope you enjoy them. Last week, Chad shared with you the joyful wedding banquet of the Christ and his bride, the church. And with a great hallelujah, the marriage of the lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready and blessed is every believer. Everyone's included and invited to the marriage feast of the lamb. If you missed that sermon, I encourage you to go to the website and watch. Today, we receive two visions in chapter 19. In the first vision, use your imagination to see the majestic and mysterious Messiah. And then later, we're gonna look at the second vision and imagine another kind of feast. It's different than the wedding banquet. And in all of this, in your mind's eye, from every conceivable angle, imagine the drama ramping up to the battle of the forces of evil and chaos. And recall that Revelation shows us what has already transpired in biblical history. This battle is not new. The battle is fought and the victory is won on the cross. Revelation replays that here vividly. So please bow your heads with me and we'll pray. Great and mighty God, I pray that you will inspire our vivid and imaginative hearts. I pray that we will be grateful for the ultimate sacrifice that is made for us and the victory that is won. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So in this first vision, if you have your Bibles with you or a Bible app, open up to Revelation 19, and I will read just verses 11 through 16 right now, and you can follow along on the screens as well. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when John sees heaven standing wide open before him, he first sees a white horse. 
And now I've told you for some time that I geek out on things in the Bible. So I have to share with you that I also geek out on things from J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And while that is fiction, it symbolically shares the Bible narrative. And I just have such a penchant for it that in John's first few words here, my imagination sees Shadow Facts from the movie. Shadow Facts is the white horse, the most magnificent of all horses in J.R.R. Tolkien's story. And in Revelation 19, the white horse is a war horse, and this infers for us that the rider approaches battle. And then John begins to share with us several different names and descriptions of the rider on the white horse. And my imagination goes to Gandalf on Shadowfax in the movie, if you don't know. So you just get a little glimpse into your pastor's wild imagination. But from these names and these descriptions that John gives us, we know this rider to be the Christ. And we see his job description in these names. The rider is called faithful and true. Some of your translations may say trustworthy and true, and that is accurate also. So the rider with all justice and righteousness, he exercises judgment and he wages war. He is both judge and warrior king. And this passage goes on to describe his eyes and his crowns and his names. So remember what we've been saying all along. Revelation doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. So the eyes of the Christ aren't really burning with fire, right? This description instead reminds us of how the Lord sees us. He doesn't look on our appearance. He looks on our hearts. He sees the depths of our souls, the pretense and the motives, and the faith and the integrity. He sees everything in believers and non-believers alike. And the reference to the writer's many royal crowns, or maybe your translation says diadems, that reaches back into ancient history. When a king was a lord over more than one geographic region, he would wear the crowns for each of those lands. And the many crowns described for our writer, they far outnumber those seven crowns for that dragon in chapter 12, or the 10 crowns for the beast in chapter 13. The arrogant but limited assumption of kingly power by the dragon and all of his accomplices that is completely overshadowed by the royal power of the Messiah. These many crowns indicate for us his sovereignty over the whole world. In addition to his first name here, Faithful and True, the writer has a second name. And this name is written on him and no one knows it but he himself. In the ancient world, the name given to a person revealed the nature of that person. So for example, the name Isaac means laughter because Sarah laughed at the prospect of her geriatric pregnancy. And Isaac's twin sons, Esau means hairy and Jacob means supplanter. 
And on and on, the Bible has these names that describe character and circumstances. Jesus' own name means he will save, as we know from the, Gabriel, from the angel instructing Joseph, his father. So how fitting here that the writer's second name, the unknown name, demonstrates how Christ transcends all human understanding. He cannot be predicted or controlled or tamed. This divine warrior remains something of a mystery for us for all time. And then our writer has a third name, the word of God. In the beginning of all creation, God brought order out of chaos and he spoke the world into being by his word. And in the prologue to the gospel of John, Jesus is called the word. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And here, now, at the end of history, he is called the word of God, bringing the divine plan to completion. Notice the writer's attire in verse 13. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. How is it that the warrior king approaches a battle that has not begun, but he already has blood on his robe? This is his own blood, that of the slaughtered lamb. By this blood, the Christ has already set his people free from sin. And this vision illustrates for us the Christ who conquers, not by battle, but he defeats his enemies by allowing himself to be killed. And this selfless, loving gift. It's the once and for all sacrifice of our Lord and Savior. Our eternal lives have already been bought at a high price. And then notice the attire of his followers. The armies of heaven, also riding on white horses, are dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now wait just a minute. What armies ride into battle dressed like they're going to a wedding banquet? And who dresses for a wedding banquet and then heads out to the battlefield? Where is their armor? Where are their shields and their helmets and their swords? And the armies of heaven do not participate in this fight here. They support, they observe the one who is battle ready? The one who wields a sharp sword coming out of his mouth, that is the offensive weapon in Ephesians 6 in the armor of God where Paul says, take the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. The armies of heaven witness the one who rules with an iron scepter as we're told in the second Psalm. And we reach all the way back to Genesis 49, where Jacob says that the scepter will never depart Judah, the lineage of Jesus' family line. 
These armies rally around the one who wears his name embroidered on his robe, written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In ancient society, statues often had their name written on the thigh and it would tell everyone who was represented in the art. And so this wording would have been familiar to John's readers, to his hearers of the word. It's just another way to identify the writer. And these words would have been familiar to anyone living in the time of the Caesars. These are the very words that were shouted to the Caesar as he would enter the Roman Senate. You are the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Hmm. Emperor of Rome? Yes. Emperor of all emperors? No way. The one true King and Lord will be around long after earthly rulers are gone. So now let's continue with the second part, the second vision here. We're gonna continue in chapter 19. I'll warn you, this text is a bit visceral. In fact, it's just, it's just gross. Um, but it is the word of the Lord, and so I will explain part of that. So again, open your Bibles if you have them with you. If not, rely on the screens. I'm gonna start at verse 17 and read to the end. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur and the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Ew. Right, I told you this is gross. But again, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his wild and wonderful way. So the angel stands there in bright and glorious sunshine. The messenger of the Lord summons all the birds of prey, the vultures, you know, the carnivorous birds that feed on meat. And he says, come gather together for the great supper of God. And he issues this invitation before any battle can even commence. And then John tells us that he sees the beast and the false prophet. And Chad's gonna talk next week about the dragon. And this unholy trinity has been linked together and, and gathering back from chapter nine, 15, 16, chapter 16. The beast and the false prophet and the kings of the earth, those are all who would purposefully, rebelliously set themselves against 
God. Their great desire, their, their full com- consumption, their, their complete obsession is to wage war against the rider on the horse and against the armies of heaven. However, these evil forces have no opportunity to even make a show of strength. John sees the deceiving beast and the false prophet captured and thrown into the lake of fire by the rider's sword. Remember, the word of God, by the mere utterance of the Christ, the obsessed foes of God are judged and slain. Isn't it amazing that as believers, as the church, to be included one day as the bride at the beautiful wedding feasts with our bridegroom, our Lord and Savior, to sit at the overflowing banquet in his presence, to be in awe of his glory, the triumph of God's kingdom over its adversaries is celebrated by this bountiful feast, this joyful feast for the righteous. The supper of the lamb is beyond our wildest imagination. Meanwhile, the scavenging birds of prey have their own banquet of sorts. These carrion birds like our own Texas turkey vulture. We've all seen him on the roadside, right? It's hideous. But in God's system, he has a purpose. And one day, evil, the beast, the false prophet, they will be thrown down. They will no longer lead the rebellious to reject God, to embrace evil. And there will be no more temptation or sin or lies or murder or addiction or abuse. There will be no more evil of any kind. There will be victory, victory over pagan power, victory over violence itself. One day. So until then, what? What are we supposed to do with a horse rider warrior and then this disgusting feast on evil? I fear that we become accustomed to evil in this world sometimes. It's on the news day and night. It's in our own personal struggles with it at times. When evil becomes an expectation, when it's just white noise, then we can actually become desensitized to some degree. And it's imperative that we remember the Christ, the judge, the warrior, the word of God, that he will eradicate evil. And as followers, we must be on guard. As his image bearers, we are to rally around him, to model him, and to stand against evil in this world, even if, as the apostle Peter says, we suffer for him for a little while. 
And if that sounds like a daunting challenge, let me put this in perspective. Jesus, the warrior king, rides to the final battle, which is never fought because he already fought that fight on the cross. Jesus wins, love wins. The Savior wins because he is the word. He was with God from the beginning. All things came into being through him. Jesus wins because he's the one that created the universe. Who could possibly overcome him? Who could overcome the creator of the universe? Some political ruler? A military? Some economic power? Some spiritual power? The beast and the false prophet? Really? Will any of this somehow overcome the word of God? The outcome can never be doubted. We have to view this from the vantage point of victory. This is not some sort of battle between equals. And I'm telling you, evil is bad. It is really, really bad. Thankfully, some people don't even grasp the full extent of evil. It may surprise you, but as a pastor, I see it when life just goes sideways. Evil is strong. It is very subtle. It is very strong. But evil cannot match the word of God. And we are the children of God. We are the adopted sisters and brothers of the Christ. So hold your head high. Walk in faith, in confidence, and with courage. Walk in the light and proclaim the word of God. Amen? Amen. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, Please fill us with your strength, with courage, and with power that we would stand with the Christ and against evil, that we would see this from the victory that Christ has already won us on the cross. Lord God, write this word upon our hearts and give us the power to carry it forward in this day. In Jesus' strong and powerful name we pray. In one voice we say, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.